Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. Uh, this is Dick Drobnik. I'm the director of the USC iBear MBA program, a mid-career 12-month-long program. In this episode of Business Class, we look at China and the global pandemic. In an episode we call The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, we speak with noted USC China scholar Clay Dubey on how COVID-19 is playing out in China. Three months ago, the IMF was forecasting a world economic growth of 3.3% in its January forecast. The current forecast of the IMF with a range is about negative 2%, which would be a bigger drop than the great financial crisis of you know, 10 years ago. Uh, world oil prices were at $55 a barrel in late January. Uh, yesterday, the Brent crude, I think, was at $22 a barrel. Unemployment claims in the United States went up by 17 million over the past three weeks. Uh, the Chinese economy was expected to grow at maybe 6%. Some people now say, including the IMF, that it's probably 0% for the year. So with that kind of introduction, tell us what you think about the effects of the, the virus on China and more broadly on the world. First of all, Dick, thank you for the opportunity to meet with you and through you and iBear, uh, your, your vast listening audience. The Chinese economy fell off a cliff. If you look at PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index, uh, data that's been produced since uh, 2005, it never recorded such a fall as happened between January and February. Essentially, uh, the PMI, if it's over 50, it suggests that the economy is expanding. If it's under 50, it suggests that the economy is contracting. And in January, it went from 51, 52 to the high 20s and low 30s a dramatic fall off. And that was because China had clamped down on economic activity of all sorts. Entire areas were locked down. And then ultimately, most of the country pressed pause. And so that hit to the Chinese economy subsequently rippled through the global economy. Even before the disease passed, uh, crossed oceans to hit the United States, to hit uh, Europe. Already, the economic impact of China's freeze was being felt. So the interconnectedness is truly profound, certainly between the United States and China, but between China and Europe. Remember, China is the number one trading partner for all of the countries in Asia and many of the countries outside of Asia. So in short, uh, we are far more interconnected today than ever. China has more than a million students studying abroad. About 380,000 of those are studying in the United States. But that means better than 600,000 are studying in Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand, in other places, including Korea, South Korea, Japan, and other Asian locations. 
Clay, could you tell us a little bit about your concept of China doing the good, the bad, and the ugly with regard to the pandemic? When you look at how China has responded to this public health emergency, uh, there are aspects that uh, can only be described as good. Uh, things that they did that proved effective and corralled the virus and has set China in a position that it can now begin to move forward. There's also the bad, uh, the fumbling at the outset where they uh, internally didn't recognize the, the enemy that they were facing and were slow to react. That uh, caused them to put uh, politics, bureaucracy, holiday concerns ahead of public health. They put politics ahead of people. And the ugly consists of uh, some of the ways that uh, the Chinese government cracked down uh, or locked uh, the country down uh, might be described as pretty harsh, as pretty harsh with regard to tracking people, uh, you know, uh, locking people up, uh, doing those kinds of things. But what they did was if you, dis if you displayed symptoms and, or if you were tested and were found to have the virus, you were isolated, not at home. They took you out of the home and put you into a hotel, a gymnasium, someplace erected for that purpose. And they didn't let you stay in close proximity to family members, to others who might come uh, to, to you know, deliver goods or things like that. And so their isolation was far more intrusive, but as we know, effective. By pulling these people out, you were able to uh, give them the treatment that they needed and ensure that they weren't infecting other people. On the technology side, Apple and Google, uh, you know, two fierce competitors are now collaborating to try to uh, create a platform that various public health agencies will be able to use to do the same sort of thing. So that if you, uh, find that you test positive at some point, you on your own app that you have installed voluntarily, you press a button and that notifies, that notifies the, the you know, central server that other phones that you've been in contact with over the last two weeks should receive a notification. And so that technology as you said, uh, has been used in Singapore, it's been used in South Korea, and these kinds of things. Telecommunications, that kind of data is really uh, impressive. Given what we've seen about the interconnectedness and the dependence of manufacturers all over the world on inputs from China, do you think or do you have any anecdotes about companies thinking about diversifying their supply chain. People are saying, you know, we really need two low-cost supply uh, centers for this. That'll cost us more, but it, it gives us insurance. Right, it's about having supplier, more than, more than a single supplier of key parts, 
but also having those suppliers be based in different locations outside. Uh, they, they can't be in the same, uh, probably the same country within that same vulnerable environment. And so you have to build in this kind of resiliency. And this has been so made so clear, especially in the pharmaceutical realm. And that's because, of course, uh, in the United States, 80 to 90 percent of all the pharmaceuticals consumed in America uh, are generics. And most of the generics come from India. Well, that's all fine and good, except that the active pharmaceutical ingredients in those generic drugs disproportionately come from China, 60 to 70 percent. And that means essentially that your uh, medicine supply chain begins in China and is vulnerable to any kind of disruption. Now, as it turns out, there was only one drug that wound up in critically short supply. But there were so many medical devices that were where the supply chain is centered in China. Something like 63 important medical device companies have key factories in China. Now, that's not even talking about uh, the, the devices that are so critical for battling COVID-19. We're not talking about the ventilators and things like that. We're talking about other devices, blood pressure machines, and other devices that are overwhelmingly sourced out of China. And so this means that your entire healthcare system, apart from uh, the actual personnel, is centered in one place. And clearly, that's not the secret to building a resilient system. Companies need to be thinking about this as they move forward. They'll want to stay in China. The China market is enormous. You want to be close to your consumers. So most companies aren't going to be leaving China. But many companies will want to consider having at least one additional sourcing location be it in Asia or somewhere else. Clay, talk a little bit about um, your view on China's economy opening up, coming back into play, and, and what's the risk of a, a second wave of uh, uh, infections coming up as people reduce their distancing and, and start to play again? So China is making its first steps of reopening. And it's important uh, to note that people are now increasingly moving around, but there are still travel restrictions. Uh, if you go to Beijing, you will be quarantined. Uh, you, will, you will need to uh, go through that. Uh, Chinese universities, it was announced yesterday, can start to allow students to come back on campus, but it's not at all clear to me how quickly that will happen or how completely it will happen. It's being left to the discretion of the local, uh, the local governments as well as the local university leaders. And even when that happens, it's not going to be business as normal. They're not going to have large gatherings, everybody has to wear a mask, all of those sorts of things. And so we see really measured steps. So for example, the Honda factory in Wuhan has reopened. 
but in the cafeteria, you don't have tables anymore. You have stools set out uh, a specific distance from each other and workers consume their lunch sitting on that stool, uh, pulling their mass down so that they can eat and then pulling that mass back up. And so it's far from business as usual. It's not just restarting the Chinese economy, it's also restarting those economies that China wants to sell to, including the American economy, the European economies, uh, India and everyone else. Uh, Clay, can you talk a little bit about the controversy of naming the virus uh, COVID-19 rather than a Wuhan virus or a China virus? Uh, the thing that I would say about this is uh, there's little doubt that this originated in China. And it seems almost certainly that it originated in Wuhan. Now, the exact point of origin and all of these questions still have to be sorted out. And there's a certain virtue in using that kind of labeling uh, in saying, you know, this is where it started, but it became a worldwide phenomenon. The Chinese government has pushed back against that. And they've used the fact that it has, that labeling it the China virus or the Chinese virus has yielded prejudice, discrimination against Asian Americans in the United States and some Asians elsewhere. And so there's sensitivity to that. And they've, they've managed to marry that sensitivity to their own interest in trying to deflect attention from the fact that it began in China and that they bungled it in the early going. Now they didn't bungle it uh, for as long as the United States did. They eventually got their act together and responded in you know, pretty impressive fashion, but they bungled it. And they bungled it because of the systematic weakness of the Chinese system. And the fact that it was tied to a bureaucratic calendar and to the holiday calendar. So all of these things came together to form this perfect storm that led the Chinese government to be slow in taking the measures that they ultimately took and slow in recognizing the seriousness of this. And as a consequence, millions of people left Wuhan traveled throughout China. Some of them traveled to the United States. Some of them were Chinese, not all of them were Chinese. And the disease wound up going virtually all around the world. There are more than 200 countries today that have, I, I have identified cases. Uh, Clay, two, two uh, final questions here to, to close our fascinating conversation today. What is your forecast for the growth of the Chinese economy from the experts that you read and have talked to for the calendar year 2020? The big debate among economists is whether or not China and the world come out of this crisis with a V-shaped recovery, uh, that you have all this pent-up demand and all you need to do is let people go back to work, let them shop again, let them go to movie theaters and do those sorts of things and that the economy will come storming back. There's no evidence that that's going to happen. There's no evidence that that's going to happen. The fears engendered by this uh, disease 
the concerns about uh, keeping it at bay, the worries about having a second outbreak come the fall, uh, the regular flu season, those sorts of things are going to cause institutions, including companies, to be very cautious in opening things back up. Once the political leaders begin to uh, allow this, uh, it won't be business as normal. It can't be business as normal. Uh, you're going to have to have uh, some, some cautions put into place. Now, does that mean that you know, the entire year is lost? That seems unlikely. That seems unlikely. But uh, this is going to be definitely a year for the record books. In China, the estimate is that at least half a million businesses went bankrupt during this three-month lockdown. Half a million companies. Now, those are only the companies that actually cease to exist. We're not talking about all of the other companies that now, as things reopen, may have difficulty getting workers back, may have difficulty uh, restoring production. Uh, they, there are a lot of obstacles ahead. And so it seems unlikely, uh, to me at least, from the people that I've been reading, that the global economy is going to do it all well in 2020. Uh, China will come back. But will it manage to get 2 or 3% uh, growth this year? If it does that, that'll be an amazing thing. It'll be an amazing thing. Just to have avoided actually having a GDP decrease, given the idea that you essentially stop doing most things for three months. Uh, if you weren't engaged in video gaming, uh, online streaming, or delivering food, uh, your business suffered. Clay, is it, are the public health numbers coming out of China of uh, virtually no new cases that are not imported cases and uh, virtually no new deaths? Are these believable numbers? Are they in the ballpark, do you think? I think the, the grand tread lines out of China are what we need to focus on. Uh, you know, how many people died in Wuhan? You know, there are estimates. Uh, the official total is somewhere around 2,500, 2,700. And it could be twice that. It could be three times that. Some people say it's 10 or 15 times that. I think that's unlikely. I think that given social media today, if it was that catastrophic, we'd have a better idea of this. Of course, it's impossible to know for sure because you're not testing 1.4 billion people. And there are a lot of people uh, who are in marginal situations that aren't, you know, that aren't being tested. And so I think it's unlikely there are no new cases. I just think that uh, the trend line is probably true. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host, Dick Drobnik, producer, Pankaj Bhushan, director, Dan Griffin, web developer, Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.